Well, I've taken several uh, mission trips in my life, and uh, the, I've had all kinds of experiences. I've been thankful for every one of those experiences. Uh, but there's one particular, uh, thank you for bringing my phone back. Uh, there, there's one particular uh, experience that I remember uh, very uh, fondly, and, and it's one of my trips to the Philippines. I've been to the Philippines multiple times, but this particular trip, instead of, of staying uh, the whole time at a hotel like we some, sometimes did, there was a part of the trip where we went to a very underserved area because we were working with Food for the Hungry and we were encouraging you to sponsor children in that community. And so we went and we wanted to spend time in that community and we actually stayed in those homes, very small homes in, in a very underserved community. I don't know how to say that without being disrespectful. It, it, it was very uh, poor financially speaking, although it was rich in people and, and, and what they bring. But we stayed at their homes and there were three young people that stayed with me at one of the homes. It was like a one bedroom home, no running water. Uh, there was this little room with a curtain where they had a big drum filled with water and we had a little scoop to, to give ourselves showers. And there was no air condition. The Philippines is, is just as hot as the valley and a little more humid. Uh, and so they took their fans that the family had and they put them in the living room where we slept on the floor. Uh, that was the best they could offer us. And when we arrived, they they had made chicken adobo. I don't know if you ever had chicken adobo. I love Filipino food, and that's one of my favorite dishes. And it was a lot of it, and rice, and and uh, and, and so they they served us. The, the little table they had in that living room only sat four people, and so the three young people and myself sat down at their invitation. They put the table before us, and then they just stood back. And I kind of felt bad that they weren't serving themselves. So we served ourselves, and, and we asked them if they were going to eat. And they said, no, no, you, you eat first. And it, and, 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 and it was a little awkward for us. So we ate, and, and the boys that were with me were big boys. And they were eating a lot, and, and, uh, and, and, but there was a lot of food. And then finally, after they saw that we had eaten and we were still eating, then they served themselves and they sat on the floor. There was nowhere else to sit. And we felt bad. We said, you, you guys sit here. This is your house. And they said, no, 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 you are our guest. And we want you to have those seats. And, and they, they ate on the floor. The man had just come from work and, and the wife had been cooking and the children were there. And it was a very humbling experience for us. Because I've stayed in all kinds of places on mission trips. I've stayed in rough places like that. I've stayed in some nice hotels as well. I, I've been in homes like those, and I've been in homes that, that look like palaces, and I've had all kinds of good food, and I'm thankful for all of it. But there's something very moving when somebody gives you their best, when somebody gives you even what costs them sacrificially to give to you. It is humbling and moving. Jesus spoke about this kind of selfless giving and this sacrificial offering. He commends the sacrificial giving of a widow and uses that to give us a lesson on giving. We're talking about being called to give. And our text is found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 21 verse one through four. If you wanna go there with me, we'll read it. It's a short passage. 
And it reads like this, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow putting two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. We are wrapping up a summer series next Sunday uh, that we've called Follow Jesus, Belong, Believe, and Become. And we're looking at what it means to follow Jesus. And we're learning from the Gospel of Luke, from, from the teacher himself, from the best teacher that ever has lived, Jesus. And, and here, Jesus is teaching his followers about giving. And I want to share with you the truths that I draw from this passage. The first one is that giving is an act of worship. I don't know about you, but it seems sometimes that we are uh, surrounded by pleas for giving, aren't we? I mean, you go to Walmart and somebody comes up to you and asks you for a dollar or if you could spare a few coins or somebody else will come and they'll bring you homemade cupcakes or, 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 or apples, candied apples that they made at home and they're trying to sell them to you for a donation. And, and then you go into the store and you're, you're paying and you're at the self uh, check out and, and the screen tells you, do you want to donate a dollar to such and such charity? Uh, you get home and your friends ask you if you want to buy raffle tickets for, for a good cause or uh, if you want to participate in a fundraising golf tournament or if you want to go to this fundraising banquet. You turn the TV on and they talk to you about how these animal shelters need our donations uh, so these animals won't suffer anymore and, and it moves our heartstrings. And you come to church and people ask you to give and, uh, and to do the, the great giveaway for, uh, for whatever cause that is, and, and then you go to school, your kids are going back to school, and the teachers tell your school the booster club needs money, and, uh, and there's a scholarship that, you know, we could use your help, and, and then you get home and you say, my goodness, there are so many pleas for giving. How do I know who to give to? How do I know how much I should give to whom? And the, the even more important question is, how do I make sure that I don't get calloused? That, that when there's all these requests coming my way, that I don't become indifferent to what is going on. Uh, when, I, when I think about giving, uh, the danger for me of the many requests that you and I receive for giving is that we would come to the place, when, when it comes to giving to the Lord, that we would think of it as an act of charity. That somehow we would see ourselves as benefactors that are trying to meet a need, that are trying to make a choice, or, or worst yet, that we would give out of guilt, out of pressure. The kind of giving that the Bible approves of is the kind that is an act of worship. In today's gospel story, Jesus is at the temple courts teaching. Now, if you're familiar with the Jewish temple, uh, there, were, there were multiple courts. There was a, a, an outer court, the court of the Gentiles, and pretty much anybody that had done certain things could come into, and then you could advance, if you were a Jew, you could advance to the women's court, and in the women's court, there were 13 treasury boxes. They, they had trumpet-shaped uh, funnels that uh, would receive money, and they were labeled to the different kinds of things that you could give to, and, and, and then there would be the court of men, and and then there would be the court where only the priests could go. But Jesus is teaching uh, in the court of women at this point, in this story that we're reading, 
where there are these treasury boxes uh, and people come to worship and they bring their financial gifts. Now, the materials that were used for these boxes were metal and wood. So if people had a lot of coins, it made a lot of noise. And if people didn't have a lot of coins, it didn't make a lot of noise. So it was a little bit obvious sometimes how much people gave. Daniel, my grandson, he likes to go to the IMAS Museum here in McAllen and he has a, his parents bought him a, a one-year membership, so he doesn't have to pay when he goes, but he always wants coins from Gigi and Pops. And the reason that he wants coins is because when he goes in the museum, there's this big funnel that if you put a, a penny or a dime, it just kind of goes round and round and makes a nice noise, and he enjoys that. So the more coins he can get from Gigi and Pops, the more fun it is. He just expects to take coins to, to the museum. Well, worshipers came to the temple and they expected to take their financial gifts. Jesus, uh, the, the Bible teaches us that Jews came to the temple to pray. They came to offer animal sacrifices. They came to hear the rabbis teach, but they also came to bring their monetary offerings. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 11 and 12. It says this. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord, and there rejoice before the Lord your God. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants and the Levites from your towns who have no allotment or inheritance of their own. The law of Moses prescribed the giving of, of tithes. Tithes is 10% of income and the gifts. That was part of, of temple worship. It was not an act of charity. It was not a, an appeal to a heartstring to meet a particular need. It was not about paying dues. It was an act of worship for a God who deserves all, who owns all, who has given all. Even the prophet reminds the people of God about this. In Malachi 3.10, he says, bring the whole tithe to the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. The prophet reminded the people of God that bringing the tithe, the 10%, was part of temple worship that it was brought into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Giving to the poor, giving to the needy was expected, but it was not expected to replace the worship of God, the giving of God at the temple. And so in this story that we're looking at today, Jesus highlights the giving of this widow over the giving of the rich. But he doesn't condemn the giving as an act of worship. Even when Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees because they were so legalistic in their tithing, they even went to their spies rack and measured 10%. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Jesus says, you guys are ridiculous. You're measuring 10% of your fajita seasoning, but you're treating people wrong. You're not practicing mercy. You're not practicing justice. That's the more important stuff. 
I care more about that than about your spices. You should practice that without neglecting this. He, he says you should do both. And so Jesus expects this act of worship from his people. He reminds us that giving is an act of worshiper. When we worship God with our finances, we are recognizing that he's the owner of all things, that he's worthy, that everything that we have belongs to him. Giving is an act of worship. Secondly, giving is an act of faith. My father-in-law passed away in May, and when we were at uh, his house, we were looking through pictures to uh, remember him and to prepare a, a slideshow for the funeral. And we came across this picture uh, that was taken from youth camp at Kono Aces Camp in La Feria, here in the valley. This was in 1951 when my father-in-law went to youth camp. He's on the second row to the very right there. And, uh, and, and although my father-in-law's family lived in Odessa, he was here because he was a student at the Valley Baptist Academy, which back then was in Brownsville. Now, most of the students, this was a high school, most of the students at this high school were preparing for ministry. So they were expected on the weekends to serve local churches. They were expected to get to churches that didn't have a pastor and maybe preach or minister there. So my father-in-law was assigned to a little Hispanic mission in Ed Couch. Now, my father-in-law didn't have a car and he didn't have money. He was one of 11 siblings. So when his parents sent him to the academy in Brownsville, he was pretty much on his own. So on the weekend, on Saturdays, he would hitchhike to Ed Couch. And he would get there and there was still daylight. He would knock on doors of church members to visit them, to check on them, maybe hoping they'd give him dinner. Uh, and then he would go and he would spend the night at the church uh, on a pew and wait for Sunday to arrive so that he could teach and preach there at Little Ed Couch Mission. And then after church, he was hoping that somebody would invite him to lunch uh, and then minister again at night and then hitchhike back to Brownsville. Uh, he didn't have a car. He didn't have money. So every weekend that he went to minister in Ed Couch was an act of faith. Last week, my wife Monica and I were in Dallas and we had dinner with a couple who are missionaries in Spain. And as we were visiting with them, Angela, the wife in this couple, reminded us that her mom was, her mom's family attended the little church in Ed Couch. And she said, and when your dad, Monica, was a pastor there, my mom was a baby and he did the baby dedication for her. And we thought that was such a neat thing because every time that my father-in-law somehow, without knowing how he would get to the church, without knowing how he would eat in Ed Couch, he trusted God. He would never have imagined that the daughter of that baby he held on that one Sunday would be a missionary in Spain that would be planting churches, leading people to Christ and baptizing others. God honors that kind of faith. And Jesus signals here that the widow had given more than the rich on this occasion. Now that's a strange assessment because everyone heard the big old pack of coins that the rich were giving and the widow's two little copper coins barely made a noise. Jesus says that she gave more. Look at what he says in verse four again. He says, all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty, 
put in all she had to live on. See, the widow had proportionately given more. The other people gave their leftovers. The given did not impact her lifestyle one bit. But this woman gave 100% of what she owned. Her giving was an act of faith. She had two small copper coins. It was the smallest currency, Jewish currency of the day. It was called the lepta or lepton. And the Talmud, which is the interpretation of the law, dictated that no one could give less than a lepta. So according to the tradition, the widow could not give less of what those two coins were, and she could not give more because she didn't have any more. Her choice was either to give it all or to not give anything at all. And she chose to give it all as an act of faith. Verse three of our story says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. From Jesus's perspective, this widow had given more than all of the other people together. And you're thinking, what kind of math does Jesus use? How is that possible? That this widow who had two little coins, the smallest currency, the smallest Jewish currency, gave more than all of the others. And it occurs to some that from God's perspective, he measures not what we give, but what we keep. That the act of faith is not in the amount that we give, but the act of faith is how much we keep to ourselves. We don't know anything about this widow other than this occasion here, this incident. How long had she been a widow? How had she survived until now? Widows in those days it did not have much of a chance for a livelihood. There was no social security or government programs. Perhaps on this day she woke up and she realized this was the last of her money. This was the last of her possessions. And, and she might have thought, maybe if I go to the store, I can get a piece of bread and have my last meal. Or maybe I can take it to the temple and give it to the Lord who provides daily bread and trust him to provide my next meal. Surely, as a devout Jewish woman, she knew the story of that other widow in the Old Testament that Elijah met. You might remember that story in 1 Kings chapter 17. Beautiful story, verse 9. I'll read it. It says, go at once to Seraphath in the region of Sidon and stay there. God is talking to Elijah. He says, I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Seraphath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. 
The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. What an incredible thing. Elijah was hungry and thirsty, and the way that God decided to provide for Elijah was through a widow who had one meal left in her life. But because of the word of the Lord, because of their faith that Elijah applied and the widow applied, not only did Elijah have food to eat, but so did the widow and so did her son, not want more meal, not want more day, but every day because that's the kind of God that we serve. When we trust him, that's the kind of God that he is. I wanna tell you that in 37 years of marriage, my family, my family and I, my wife and I, have always known God to be a faithful provider. When we first got married, our income was very small. And then there's been years, of, there's been a lot of abundance. But in all of that, Throughout the days and the weeks and the months, God has always provided for us, not just our needs, but beyond that. And we're so thankful for that. And throughout our marriage, we have worked on budgets. We've, we've looked at what our income and what our expenses ought to be. And every time we work on a budget, we realize there are more things that we would like to do than there is income. So there are decisions to be made. Now, if we were to wait until we had left over extra money to give to the Lord, we would not be able to give very often. But our commitment as a couple from the beginning was that our tithe would be the first thing in our budget. We don't want to give from our leftovers. On payday, when our first transaction is to get online and to give to the Lord's work, then we are exercising our faith. We're, we're telling God we trust you, not just with what we give, but what we have left over. See, giving is an act of faith. And it includes our time, and it includes our talent, and it includes our service and our money. God honors our faith. Jesus honored this widow's faith. And then third and, and last, giving is an act of surrender. When this widow gave those two small coins that she had left, she was giving of herself. She was surrendering her needs. She was surrendering her future. She was surrendering her livelihood. She was surrendering herself. See, giving is very difficult when you consider that what you have is yours. When you say, it's my money, it's my time, it's my talent, it's my house, it's my car, then, then Every time that there's an opportunity to give, there's a little bit of a struggle. There's a negotiation. When I work with couples who uh, are thinking about getting married and, and we talk about marriage, one of the first notions that I try to get rid of with them is this notion of a 50-50 relationship. Sometimes it says, well, you know, uh, a relationship works when it's 50-50. And what they mean by that, I'm sure, is that both of them have to make an effort but I say to them, no, 50-50 doesn't work because that means that you keep 50% to yourself and that you're always trying to make sure that the other person puts 50%. And instead of a relationship 
where there's giving, it's a tug of war. Well, you only gave 48%. And I said, the, the, the way a marriage is supposed to work is 100-100. You'll give 100%. And your spouse gives 100%. That's, that's the way that it's supposed to work. When, when I do wedding ceremonies, couples choose to use different symbols to, to, to talk about their union. Some like a unity candle, some like unity sand, some like the cord of three strands or a unity cross. Uh, and then in Hispanic weddings, sometimes they have this thing called a lasso, which is this string of beads that signifies their, their bond or union. And they also use a symbol called arras. Arras is a little coffin that has coins in it. And when couples use that, they, in the wedding ceremony, they exchange the arras, which are a representation of their material possessions. And as they're placing these little coins in each other's hands, they are committing before their witnesses that uh, their material possessions are 100% each other's, that it is no longer mine or yours, but it is ours. And that's the way it should be. That's the way that we should commit in a relationship. Although the tithe or the 10% is a principle of proportionate giving in the Bible, God does not want just 10% of you. God doesn't just want 20% of you or 50% of you. God wants 100% of you. He offered himself 100% on your behalf. And he invites you to trust him with your pain, with your struggles, with your sin, with your victories, with your dreams and your possessions, your time, your plans, your life. When our entire life is surrendered to God, when, when you go through the baptismal waters like these young girls did, and you say, completely committed to Christ, buried in Christ, and risen to a new life, then giving becomes natural because you already belong to him. You know, I've been working on my fence in my backyard little by little when I have time and I was trying to do it with an impact drill and taking a long time in this hot summer weather. And then my son Josh came and he said, Dad, you know you could do this with a compressor and a nail gun. I said, well, I don't have a compressor. He said, well, I do. And, and I said, well, can I borrow? He said, yes. And so he brought it over and I said, man, this is fun. And it went fast. And and then I finished a portion and then I had to paint and I put the compressor in the garage and I've had it there for a couple of weeks. And the other day he called me and he said, hey, uh, Dad, you still have that compressor? I said, yeah, I do, it's in my garage. And he said, well, do you think I can go pick it up? And I said, sure. He goes, I can bring it back, I'm just gonna use it. I said, no, why don't you keep it because it belongs to you. If it stays in my garage too long, I might start thinking it belongs to me. When everything that you have belongs to the Lord, you need to remember that when he comes and asks for something, it already belongs to him. Paul tells the church in Rome that our true and proper worship is, is the giving of ourselves. Look at Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1. says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The kind of worship that pleases God is the offering of ourselves as, as living sacrifices. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross. And then he says, the way you respond to that is by, by being living sacrifices. In other words, God doesn't just care about what you give. He cares about how you live. You know, in studying for today's message, 
in our preaching team, uh, Ronald Sanchez is uh, preaching in our Spanish service at 1230. And, and as we were looking at the passage, Ronald says, Pastor, have you considered the context, the, the passage that comes right before chapter 21? I said, no, I haven't. And, and he says, well, it's interesting because it has to do with widows as well. So I looked at it, and it's in, in uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 45. Listen to what it says. This is immediately before the story of the widow who gives the two small coins. He says, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus condemned these teachers of the law for their giving and for their living. He says they, they wear these robes to show off. They pray to show off. They give to show off. And then they oppress the poor. They take advantage of the widows. They, they charge them for religious services. Some of their wealth is built on the back of the widows and the poor. And Jesus says there will be judgment on that. Jesus cares about what we give, but he cares about how we live as well. Inversely, this widow understood that what God wanted from her was to offer her life in worship, not just the money part. When she offered her two small copper coins, she was offering her life in worship. She was surrendering all to God. The teachers of the law might have been unjust, but her God is a just God who knows how to take care of his people. My question for you today is, have you, have you surrendered to God? Does God have all your heart? Does God have your calendar? Does God own your dreams and your hopes? Does, does God own your wallet? Does God own your life? He doesn't just want a part of you. He wants all of you. I want to invite you today to surrender all to him. To surrender all to him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this story of this widow whose name we don't know, but who 2,000 years later teaches us so much. Father, may we be like that widow that worships you, that trusts you, that surrenders to you. That our giving of our time and of our money and of our talent will be an overflow of a complete surrender to you. You have been so good to us. Your grace has overflown to us. And now we pray that that grace flow from us to you. Pray that if there's anyone here, Father, who's not surrendered to you, who's not made you Lord and King of their lives, that today would be the day if they need to step out in believer's baptism or if they need to make a commitment to start giving by faith, to start giving as an act of worship or to keep giving what they're giving but to remember the kind of attitude that you require 
or to make sure that our giving and our living are consistent. That we not just give what we're supposed to, but that we live with justice and mercy as well. Do your work in us, Father. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.